Good morning, everybody. Please have a seat. If this is your first time with us, we're a very social, chatty church. It's a wonderful thing. We could meet and greet, could go on for an hour if we didn't stop it. So. <laughs> but there is coffee in the fellowship hall after we're done for more talking and more fellowship. But as, as Chris said, my name is David Root. I'm the student ministry director here. Been part of Linworth uh, for a long time now, about 15 years. Uh, and it's my joy to have been on staff actually three years this month. Uh, working with student ministry. It's, uh, it's a great joy for me. And uh, I'm really humbled. I'm uh, in a program that Linworth has here with the younger men called the New Elder Training um, for men that are aspiring to become pastors and elders here at Linworth. And part of that uh, means that I get to teach once or twice a year here on Sunday morning. It's a joy. I love bringing God's word. I love uh, just being together and going over God's word together. So I'm really humbled and also very glad to be here this morning. But before I dive in, uh, Pastor Rich, who gave the announcements this morning, asked me just to add a little footnote onto what he said. If you're interested in ministries, you can just go onto our website uh, and click the Get Involved part on the right side. Uh, we'd love to help you get plugged in uh, with your particular gifts and help you to serve uh, the way that God would like you to serve here at Linworth. So if that interests you, you can just go onto our website, linworthroadchurch.com. On the right side, Get Involved, uh, and then there are more steps from there. All right. So this morning, uh, we're continuing in our series through the Gospel of John. Um, if you're, this is your first time with us, or if it's been a little while, uh, we are going slowly through the Gospel of John. And at Linworth, one of the great things we do is we really are very serious about the Word of God. We look through it slowly and deliberately so as, so as to suck all of the marrow, all of the wisdom that we can out of it. Uh, today, we're breaking that tradition just a little bit. We are going to do all 40-some verses of John chapter 9. It's a wonderful story that I think is really best if we look at it all together in one group. But let me set the stage a little bit. In John chapter 8, Jesus refers to himself for the first time as the light of the world. He then had a long debate with the Pharisees about himself, which ends with the Pharisees picking up stones to stone him. Jesus definitely made his point, but he doesn't seem to make many friends among the religious leaders in that exchange. Well, now a short time later, Jesus uses more than words to make his point. It is still likely the Feast of Tabernacles, as it was in John 8, so lots of people are around town. Jesus is out with his disciples, and they encounter a man born blind. What happens next is one of the most amazing scenes written in the Gospels, with Jesus making a very strong case that he is, in fact, the Son of God. Let's pray together. Let's invite the Lord to be with us as we open the scripture. Father God, we, we love you. We are thankful for your holy word, God, that you allowed it to be written, that you inspired John, and, and you made him remember the things that he saw with his eyes. And Father, that we might study it today, 2,000 years later, it is in itself a miracle. Father, and we, we don't take that lightly, God. These, these are your words for us, your people, that we might know you more and that we might come to salvation and come to life abundant. Father, this morning, would you unlock your word to us? Would you speak to us through your Holy Spirit? God, that we might all grow, grow, grow closer to you this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as much as I love to speak, I really don't think you'd like to hear me just read all 40 verses of John chapter 9. So I, I invited up some of the students this morning, and we are going to read this chapter together. Uh, the words, you can, you're welcome to pull out one of the pew Bibles in front of you, or they're also going to be on the screen this morning. And I hope that as we as we read this, that we have a little bit of an understanding of what it was like to be there. It's so easy just to read these words in the scripture and, and never really understand that like, this actually occurred. People actually said these things. It was a live 
event. And sometimes we, we lose that just in, in, in the, the flatness, so to speak, of just words on a page. So as we read this morning, as we hear this, uh, let's, let's put ourselves there on the scene. And let's, uh, let's just really soak up the word of God this morning. As he, that is Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Jesus answered, Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, which means sent. And he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, some said, others said, and he kept saying, so they said to him, he answered, They said to him, he said, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight, and he said to them, Some of the Pharisees said, but others said, and there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, he said, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, His parents answered, His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agree agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age, ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. He answered, They said to him, He answered them, And they reviled him, saying, The man answered, They answered him, and they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, he answered, Jesus said to him, and he said, 
and he worshiped him. Jesus said, Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Jesus said to them, Word of the Lord. Let's give these people a hand. Great job. You are the man. All right. There is so much we could discuss with this story, but I, I was able to narrow it down to six points. But I think with each of these points, God points out just a really important thing that it take, it's worthwhile for us to consider. The first point, sin is a serious, destructive issue. If you look at verse 2 in the story, the disciples asked Jesus who had sinned, the man or his parents, that he was born blind. Now, without the benefit of a good understanding of medicine, the disciples, along with, really, the Jews of the day as a whole, they attributed suffering to sin. They believed, first, that our own sin can cause physical suffering. Second, that it was possible for God to afflict, su to afflict suffering upon future generations for the deeds of the current generation. And third, that it was, it was indeed possible to sin in the womb. This last part they took from Psalm 58.3. There's a verse there about sin in the womb. And also the pre-birth conduct, so to speak, of Jacob and Esau, how they came out you know, grabbing the heel and all that. That was evidence that they pointed that you could actually sin in the womb. But because people were born with such afflictions, and afflictions were tied to sin, it was easy to, well, well they had to wrap their minds around it somehow. Because suffering was commonly viewed to be part of sin is one of the reasons why Jesus often told people after he healed them that their sins are forgiven. So not only in those instances does he heal their suffering, but he heals the, the underlying heart issue that they wrestled with in terms of their own sin. Notice that Jesus' disciples hadn't yet gained Jesus' compassion for the sick. D.A. Carson, one of the authors that I I read in my study in his commentary, he wrote that he compared the disciples in this exchange to Job's miserable companions. How would you measure your own compassion when you come across someone who maybe is, is sick or has special needs or, or maybe just isn't quite like you? you know, how would you gauge your own compassion in those circumstances? Sin is indeed destructive, and our sin can sometimes make us sick or physically hurt. It can sometimes be passed on to generations. Now, I don't want to go into the theology of intergenerational sin and all that. That's really a, an in-depth discussion for another day. But there are some facts that really just can't be avoided. Most people who abuse were once themselves abused. Alcoholism and depression both have very strong genetic links. Most of us who swear we'll never be like our parents one day find ourselves adopting their bad habits. Now, again, I don't, I don't want to go into the whole theology of, of all of this intergenerational sin, but there are just some facts that are hard to ignore, but I'm sure we can all agree, first, that sin is destructive. Next, that our sin hurts those who are very close to us. And finally, that we can often develop sin habits that we swear we will never develop. Sin is just like that. And friends, we must take sin seriously. We need to have places where we can be honest about what we are struggling with. And by this, I don't mean that we just one time, maybe in our life group or with a, a trusted friend, we 
we confess something. We, we say something that we're struggling with. And maybe receive some prayer, maybe receive some counsel, and then never talk about it again. Is that, isn't that kind of the norm? We, we, we mention it once, we, we, get, we get it out there, and we pray for it, and then, then do we ever come back to it? Do we ever talk about it again? Because maybe we still struggle with that same issue, but we've gotten it out there, we've confessed it, we've checked off the box, we can just keep it to ourselves, and hopefully they'll never ask me about it again. If we really are serious about getting rid of the sin in our lives, we have to be honest about it, more than just that once. In addition to the, to the work I do here at the church, two afternoons a week, I, uh, I work at a counseling practice. And one of the things that I, I tell my clients, especially those who, who struggle with bad habits and addictions, I, I tell them, usually on the first or second session, I, I say to them, look, when you come into this office, this is a safe place. And I want you to be honest about where you are with, this, with your issue. And if that means that you come in here two weeks from now and you tell me, David, I, I screwed up so much this week, I'm a, I'm a complete wreck. I want that kind of honesty so I know how, how to best intervene and how best to help them. How effective would counseling be if, if my client just came in and lied? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm doing a lot better. Oh, yeah, I, I didn't do that this week. But meanwhile, they're suffering. It's not going to be effective. It's a waste of our time and their money. And maybe that's how our norms are in our life group or in our relationships. I really want to challenge us on this point. Sin is very destructive. Satan knows how valuable you are. Satan knows the great things that you can do once you are freed from your sin and once you're living fully alive and you have your temptations kind of under control and you're, and you're really living in the spirit. And he wants to destroy those things. He wants, Satan wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your family. He wants to destroy your career. And he wants to destroy the good works that you do. Part of taking sin seriously is being honest about it more than just once. So let me ask you, do you take your sin seriously? In your relationships, do you have people that you're honest with about your sin? In your life groups, do you have opportunities for ones to confess? I really think we could take a good example, a good lesson from the Catholic Church in how much they prioritize confession. They know how freeing it is to sit down with someone and just spill your guts, so to speak, to get it all out there. Because then you're able to get it out there, you confess it to another person, you confess it to the Lord, and the priest in that instance is able to, to bring God's forgiveness and his compassion in that. So let's take, let's take that example. Let's not continue to walk in sin. Let's be serious about it and stop letting it destroy us. Next point this morning. When we are freed from our sins, it is for the glory of God. Verse 3, Jesus said, It was not, this man, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. I also like what it says in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Paul writes, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all your sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. It wasn't just a quiet work that Jesus did. Jesus triumphed over our sin on the cross. What an amazing truth that is. Everything that Jesus does glorifies God. That is the principal mission of Jesus. If you look in John chapter 17, I'm sure we'll be there in a few weeks or months in our series, Jesus is praying to God right before his arrest. And one of the first things he said is, Father, I have glorified you 
on this earth. Through his works, through what Jesus does, his primary purpose is glorifying God. It is easy to look at the redemptive work of Christ on the cross and see it as primarily about us. And this view is really incorrect. The primary reason for Jesus' redemptive work on the cross was the glory of God. It is indeed for our benefit, but it is first for the glory of God. Notice in, that, in verse 3, Jesus didn't say, this man was born blind that he might see again. No, he said, this man was born blind that the glory of God may be revealed in his life. So often we, we look at the cross and we look at Jesus' work and we, we think about it as primarily about us. Now friends, it is for us, but it is not primarily about us because God wanted his glory to be displayed. In destroying sin, he received the glory that he had when he created the world. When he does a great work in us, we benefit immensely, but God receives glory for what he has done. Think of spiritual gifts. Most of you, if I asked you why God gives us spiritual gifts, you would, you would tell me, well, because so we can do God's work here on the earth. So God might be glorified in the work that we do. And that is correct. When God does a great work in our lives, it's the same, it's the same thing. It's for his glory primarily. Now, we don't know why Jesus used mud in this story. I read a couple of different commentaries, and there's a lot of different discussion among scholars why there was mud. Jesus used a lot of different methods to heal people, but I'm going to just maybe lean into the symbolic a little bit. Jesus is willing to come into the mess of our lives, make it a little messier, and then do a great work for the glory of God. Sometimes, in order for God to really heal us and do a great work, it wrecks us a little bit. Sometimes things really get worse before they get better. Often when we're honest about a sin problem, there are consequences we must deal with. It may hurt our loved ones. We may need to make amends. Our honesty and repentance may cause a, a friendship or a relationship to end. Notice in this story how Jesus uses his own saliva. Jesus is not afraid to come into the mess with us because it is in our messiest place often that Jesus needs to do the most work. After our lives are transformed by Jesus, we must glorify God. He frees us from our sins for our benefit, but primarily for his glory. We should continue to glorify God through our lives, not just when we're saved, but continually as we're refined and we are more and more becoming like him. Every work of God is primarily for his glory and fame. We also happen to benefit. Next point this morning, the man in the story, his conversion was obvious, but it was also genuine. If you look at it, verses 8 and 9, when the, the neighbors and that discussion that they had, hey, isn't, this, isn't this the same guy? And he said, yes, I, I am in fact the same guy. It, his conversion was obvious because he was born blind. He was blind and now he sees. But it's genuine in that he didn't continue to beg. He didn't just go back and sit there and, and put his hand out, or, or worse, fake it. He said, oh, oh, now I can see, but I still can, you know, just keep on begging and keep making more for myself. He leaves that, and the townspeople notice that change. When you read the Gospels, every time you see an interaction with Jesus, the person who leaves is never the same. Even people like Zacchaeus, who wasn't directly going after Christ, who kind of stood at a distance, and Christ reached out to him, and his life was never the same after that day. The disciples' lives were so changed, particularly through the resurrection, and after all the time they spent with Jesus, 
that their entire lives were different from that point on. When Peter and John were being persecuted by the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4, they say this in verse 20, as for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. When Jesus changes our lives, we're never the same. Let's not let the obvious cloud the genuine. Next point this morning. Once again, the Pharisees were more focused on the circumstances of the healing rather than the man who was healed. We've spent a good amount of time in this series discussing Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees. I don't want to spend too much time here this morning, but there's an interesting point that Jesus disappears in the story. Jesus doesn't directly interact with the Pharisees until the very end of this chapter. He tells the man to go wash, the man washes, and then Jesus kind of disappears into the wings of the story. But it's the neighbors who brought the man before Jesus, before the Pharisees, excuse me. Now, let's not be too harsh on the neighbors. They probably weren't wanting this man to get thrown out of the synagogue. They probably just wanted an explanation. I mean, the guy was blind, and now he's not. And so they wanted to consult the religious authorities and say, how can this happen? They were just looking for advice, all right? Clearly, this is not something they saw every day. Think about yourself at work. Think, think maybe the, the guy or, or lady the next cubicle over, you, lo you look over and, and, and they're just going, nah. and all of a sudden, all their work for the day is just done. I mean, <laughs> word about that's going to spread real fast, folks. There's going to be major conversations at the water cooler, and you're, gonna, you're probably going to talk to your boss, too, and be like, What's going on with this guy? How can this happen? All right, that, that was probably the neighbor's motivation here. They just wanted an explanation. They wanted to know what was going on. And the Pharisees were the authority to rule on issues such as this. Well, once again, Jesus healed on the Sabbath. It's kind of a big no-no back in those times. Interestingly, it wasn't only the healing that was a violation of the Sabbath, but on the Sabbath, it's also a violation to need, K-N-E-E-D, need, so when Jesus kneaded together the mud and the saliva, technically that's a violation of the Sabbath. In this story, though, we see the Pharisees divided, which is very interesting. We don't see that very often in the scriptures. We have two different camps. We have the group that's really mad about Jesus healing on the Sabbath. And therefore, he clearly cannot be the son of God. He's got to be a sinner because a sinner would keep, a sinner wouldn't mind about, wouldn't worry about the Sabbath. But we have another camp that says, wait a minute. This guy was blind and now he sees. Clearly God was involved in that. That doesn't just happen. So we see that disagreement take place here in this story. This is presumably why they brought the parents into the story. They needed to affirm that he was in fact born blind and not faking it. Because let's be honest, the guy could have fooled his neighbors. You know, he could have just kind of been doing an act all these years and just fooled everybody into giving him money. Well, the parents are going to know better. So that's why they pull the parents in. But it's too bad the parents didn't stand up more for their son in the story. It's really kind of tragic, actually. They likely did not understand the circumstances of the healing, but they still deferred to him because they were afraid of being thrown out of the synagogue. They didn't speak against their son, but they didn't speak up for him either. So let's maybe aim to be a little better parents than that. Then, you know... Obviously, we all, we all want our children to grow up to be confident men and women that, that can speak for themselves, but I, I hope that no matter how young or old your children are, that you're, you'll still stand up for them and affirm them and be, walk beside them, even in this case if it would mean you know, being thrown out of the synagogue. But the Pharisees focus on whether or not Jesus was a sinner. 
clearly the man couldn't judge this fact. Which brings me to the next point. What Jesus has done in our lives is often our best defense for the gospel. Verse 25. Love this verse. I think the whole story maybe could be boiled down to this, whole, to this verse right here. The man answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know. I was blind, now I see. Notice that the Pharisees were so tied up in the how of the healing that they missed the man's answer. It was so simple. I, I, I was blind, now I see. The man was not a theologian. All right? He couldn't see. It, he was literally at the mercy of others for everything in his life. We don't know anything about his spiritual or faith background, but it, it's irrelevant. He was blind and now he sees. That is his testimony, and that's the evidence of the power of God in his life. Remember, he left his old life of begging after, his, after he can receive sight. Friends, we live in a world that is becoming more and more hostile to Christianity. More and more people, and indeed our culture at large, are not neutral toward the church, but are outspokenly against it. Now instead of people having a basic understanding and belief in God, now it seems more and more people are developing arguments against God himself. While entirely possible, it is becoming more and more difficult to win people over for Christ just with logic and well-presented apologetics. There are just too many arguments against it that have permeated culture, thought, and social media. But friends, no one can ever argue with what God has done in your life. No one can ever point at something God has done in your life and say God didn't do it. No one can refute your story by any method of persuasion, logos, ethos, or pathos. You can argue, we can argue apologetics all day long, but no one can say that God did not do a work in your life. No one could tell the blind man that he was, in fact, still blind, or that God did not heal him. D.A. Carson said in his commentary on this chapter, John may be telling his readers that decisive faith is characterized by the testimony of personal witness. So not only is it our best defense for Jesus, understanding God's work in our lives and giving testimony about it builds a genuine faith. Remember, it's for God's glory and our good. Sometimes when we tell our stories, we won't have a lot of support. Look at the parents in this chapter. But don't let escalating opposition deter you. Your story is powerful, very powerful. Maybe that's why when the, when the primary reason God frees us, it is for his glory. When we share what God has done in our lives, he gets the glory, and no one can ever argue against it. Remember, God can do anything. Is there anything in your life that you think is too big for God to heal? Too big for God to work in? Too big a mess for God to, for God to work in and do a good work? Remember, he's in the work of doing the impossible. He just healed a man who was blind from birth. Two chapters later, he's going to bring a man back from the dead. There is absolutely nothing too big in your life for God. And God wants to bring glory to himself by doing a good work in you. Next point. Last point this morning. When Jesus transforms our lives, our response is to worship. If you look at verse 38 here at the end of the story, he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus has made a comeback here at the end of the story. The man has survived his ordeal with the Pharisees without Jesus there to give his own testimony there. When he transforms our lives, 
the act gives us all we need to share Jesus with others. God works in us. We give him the credit. Others move closer toward believing in him. Notice Jesus takes the initiative at the end of the story here. Jesus doesn't immediately tell the man who he is. Remember, the man was blind. So he's not going to recognize Jesus' face when he sees him. Jesus kind of comes in, comes in from the side there. And he, the, the man asked for the Son of Man to be identified because he's eager to believe in him. That's what Jesus says here in verse 35. He says, do you believe in the Son of Man? The man answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. That, that encounter with God and with Jesus there left him in a place where he knew that what he had was from God because there's no other explanation. And he was looking for Jesus in a sense, if only in his heart, he was looking for Jesus again that he might believe in him. And the, the man, he, he's, done with, he's done with the religious authorities. He's done with the Pharisees. He, he gave them his best account. They didn't want to hear it. He knows the truth of his own story. He was done with them. But it's interesting how the man's description of Jesus evolves through the story. First, he refers to Jesus as a man in verse 11. In verse 17, he refers to Jesus as a prophet. And here at the end of the story, he refers to Jesus as the Son of Man. He makes all that steps, all those steps through the course of the story. After realizing Jesus was the Son of God and that he healed him, the man worships. He gives Jesus the glory for what he's done. When God moves in our lives, we need to move, we need to give him the glory. We need to worship him. It's his work. Let's give him the credit that he is due for that. As we move toward responding to the message today, I want to quickly address one element in this story, and that is light. Light is a primary and central theme to all of the book of John. You could look at chapter 1. There's a lot of writing about light in there. In chapter 8, Jesus refers to himself as the light of the world, and Jesus refers to himself as the light of the world at the beginning Verse 5 of this chapter, at the end of the chapter, he addresses the spiritual blindness of the Pharisees. Blindness, of course, being the absence of light. He addresses it to them by their failure to believe in him. He essentially tells the Pharisees that he has brought light into the world, therefore exposing sin and giving them no excuse for not responding to him. Folks, we all, we all have a response to this morning's message. And I'm... I'm, I'm really big on, on responding. If, if, I'm, if I'm bold and honest, I only get to teach once or twice a year, so I'm just going to be really bold. It's the, the worst thing, what would make me very sad today, if, I, if I'm honest, is, is for you to go home today or on the way home. Wasn't that a nice message that the youth minister gave? And that's it. I mean, you, you came out here in the cold. We're gathering here together. We're here to worship the Lord. Let, let's respond to him this morning. Let's take a step towards him. We can all do that. If, if we don't respond to what God is going to do here, then we, we really just, we, it goes in one ear, out the other. And, and, if that's, and, and if you're not ready to respond this morning, that's, that's okay. And I've got, I've got lots of different steps in lots of different ways. But that's how God works, is when we respond to him, when we take steps closer to him. So I just want to urge each of you just to take a step, one step closer to God this morning. And here are some ways that you can, that you can do that. Maybe, maybe if you're honest, you're, you're walking in, in spiritual darkness. You've never asked Jesus to open your eyes. You've never trusted Jesus as the Son of Man, as the man did here at the end of this story. 
And, and I hope that seeing what God can really do here in this story has opened your eyes more and more to what God could really do in you. The fact that Jesus came to this earth, lived a perfect life, healed the sick, raised the dead, and yet was crucified, died a sinner's death on the cross, that our guilt and our sin might be paid for, and that our relationship with God that was broken by Adam and Eve in the garden might be restored, and that by placing our faith and trust in Christ, we have eternal life. If you've never made that decision, I, I just want to urge you to consider that this morning. To consider just saying what, what the man did here in verse 38. Lord, I believe. Lord, I believe. Maybe, maybe there's uh, some sin in your life that you need to confess. At the end of the service, the prayer team is going to come down here, and, and we're, we're here to, to pray with you for anything. But if, if you just want to just, just kind of get some, some sin out there and just be like, hey, I'm struggling with this. Hey, I've had a really hard time with this. Hey, I've been, I've been working on this issue for a while, and I, and I just, I've slipped up recently. There's no judgment, folks. Before God, we are all sinners. We are all broken, and we are all working on issues in our lives. It's important that we get our sin out and we confess it. Maybe you can talk about it with a close friend, or maybe in your life group this week, you, you carve out some time just so that, that people can have the opportunity just to, to say the, the sin that they're struggling with right now. Confessing it to God is a step, but confessing it to others allows God to work more powerfully. Or maybe another way for you to respond this morning, maybe there's an area of your life where you're asking God to work and he just, does, and just doesn't seem to be working. Maybe there's, maybe there's a problem in your family. Maybe, maybe your marriage is just really difficult right now. Maybe there's some, some problem with your kids, maybe in their relationship with you or maybe just in your child's life uh, themselves. Maybe there's financial problems in your family. Maybe there's some difficulty at work. Maybe there's a health concern with you or with someone that you love dearly. Well, your response this morning first is to believe that all things are possible with God. And he wants to make himself known on this earth by doing the impossible. Pray for it today. R write it on your, on your Connect card. You know, make, make a, a bold prayer. Folks, so often we, we, when we pray, we, we just kind of just revert back to these, these, these nice little rote prayers, and, and that's, those are fine, and God honors prayers, he listens to prayers, but let's pray boldly. Let's ask God to do the impossible. One way I like to talk about prayer and about faith is, you know, it says earlier, it, Jesus talks about in the other Gospels that, you know, if we have faith as small of a mustard seed, we can command the mountains and they'll fall into the sea. You know, do, do I believe that if I go, go down to West Virginia, look at the mountains and command them to fall into the sea, do I believe that if I command it to do so that it's going to happen? Probably not. But you better believe if God willed it, it would happen. And I, I absolutely believe that. God is in the business of doing the impossible for his own glory. And, and I know many of you out there have, have stories of amazing transformation of what God has done in your life and ways that he's come through that, that you never really thought possible at first. That is what God does, friends. This man was born blind. He was doomed for a life of begging and despair, and look what happened. It's amazing. And God is still in the work of doing great things like that. And the, the, the sad truth is, you know, even though we pray bold things, God may not intervene in every situation. 
You know, the, the person that we're praying for that's very sick may, may not get better. But one thing that we know is that God works everything together for his glory, even in tragedy and death. I think we maybe saw a little glimpse of that this morning with the baby dedication. God will work through us, even through our pain and our grief. Finally, maybe your response this morning is you need to share your story. Share it with your family. Share it with your kids. Share it with your coworkers. Have, have you ever really shared what God's done in your life? Have you been honest? Like, hey, this is where I was, and God stepped in, and this is where I am now. Let God bring glory to himself as you share your story. God did a great thing in your life, and let him, let him just receive all the glory for it. Let the, the gospel and the kingdom of God advance through the telling of our stories the way he did for the blind man on that day. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your transformative work on the cross. We thank you for the amazing power that you showed while you walked among us here on the earth. God, we, we thank you that you are in the business of healing and doing the impossible things in our lives. God, give us the faith to believe it can happen. God, forgive us of our sins. God, forgive us of, of our, our sins that we commit willingly and knowingly. God, help us to be honest with them, take them seriously. Because, Father, we, we, don't, want, we don't want our sin to destroy us any more than it already has. God, may, may everyone here this morning just take one step closer to you and respond to this message somehow today. Lord, that you might receive all the glory through what you've done in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.